A former U.S. president once said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And I don't need to tell you that these are divided times in many ways, especially in our own country. And that divide is so deep in many ways that I think we feel like there's no overcoming it. How can we find common ground when the opinions differ so widely and so uh, distinctly? These are certainly divided times. And I'd just like to say, and, and maybe this is an encouraging note, maybe a discouraging one, but I'd like to just say, I do not have the answers that will solve the divide in America today. And even if I did, nobody's coming knocking on my door asking for them. But here's the truth that we need to know. There is no more important time than right now for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to be united as one. If the world is going to look on and see unity anywhere, they should see it first and foremost in the church. We need to be united and unified at this time more than ever. And unfortunately, the church has far too often been known for petty divisions and disagreements and quarrels. And such pettiness that oftentimes takes place does not exalt Christ or adorn the gospel. The church looks most like its Savior when it displays humble, loving unity. Now, the source of divisions and quarrels and fights within the church usually, not always, but usually stems from pride. In fact, it may be that it always stems from pride. See, when people want what they want, and they want their own way, and their own desires to be fulfilled, it makes for disunity. It's only when a church can get beyond self that it can really come together as one. A prideful person is a self-serving person. And self-serving people never work together for the unity of Christ. Instead, the Lord calls us to a life of unity through humility. And that's what we get to in Philippians 2, verses 1 to 4. A life of unity through humility. And in fact, that's the only way we can actually have unity, is through humility. If you take humility away, you will never have true unity. Again, many churches have been destroyed, torn apart by a lack of unity. Families have been torn apart for a lack of humility. The two go hand in hand. So how do we achieve that? How do we get to a place where we are united, where we are coming together as one? Because let's be honest, we're not all of the same, are we? We have different opinions. We have different ideas. We have different ways of looking at problems, different ways of looking at life itself. So if we're going to be united, how's that going to happen? Well, through learning humility. But here's the problem. Humility is hard. It's not easy to be a humble person. The great American statesman Benjamin Franklin was well aware of his lifelong failings in this area of humility. As a proud man, he pursued what he considered virtue. In fact, he wrote out a list of virtues that he would work on. And the one that constantly tripped up Benjamin Franklin was the virtue of humility. He wrote on the topic, There is perhaps no one of our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. Beat it down, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases, it is still alive. 
even if I could conceive that I could completely overcome it, I should probably be proud of the fact that of my humility. For Ben Franklin, humility was the one virtue that was out of grasp. His pride was just too strong. But the thing is, if humility is out of grasp, then so is unity. Here's the thing that's encouraging, though. Christ-like humility is possible. And it's possible only through knowing Christ. Christ-like humility is one of the central themes of the book of Philippians as we've been studying. After all, if the church is to strive together for the gospel, it means to be united together. And the only way to achieve that unity is through a heart of humility. Now, I was studying Philippians 2, verses 1 to 4 this week, and I kind of went back and forth. I was trying to look at the theme. I said, is it it talking about humility or is it talking about unity? And which of those should I highlight, unity or humility? And I kind of bounced it back and forth, and really there's no way to separate them. Uh, Though Both themes are tied together here in an inseparable way. So is the central theme humility or unity? Well, to choose one and leave out the other is to miss half the passage. It's talking about unity through humility. Now, Paul, in writing to the Philippian church, is mostly positive about his statements of them. This was a church that was on the right track. It was going in a good direction. And yet, there were the embers of disunity in the church. Later on, we get to chapter 4, we'll talk about some of those. The church was not vastly divided. They weren't fighting with one another necessarily, but those embers were there. And if they were allowed to be fanned into flame, it could cause a major fire. So Paul tries to address the matter of unity. And if if the Philippian church is going to overcome disunity, it's going to be through humbling themselves. Humble unity is the goal. How do we achieve it? Well, Philippians 2, 1 to 4, gives us four keys for humble Christ-honoring unity. Four keys for humble Christ-honoring unity. Let me give them to you. Number one, recognize common ground. If we're going to be humble and unite as one, we have to begin by recognizing the common ground we have in Christ. There cannot be, nor will there ever be, any total freedom of love of self and pride that besets us apart from the work of Christ. And now we, we still have the flesh to contend with. So pride still rears its ugly head from time to time. But if, there's no, if Christ is not in us, there's no hope of humility. And therefore no hope of unity. So without a doubt, the most important and principal key of biblical unity is this, that we have this common ground, Christ as the ground of our humility and our unity. Look at verse 1 of Philippians 2. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, he says. I want us to focus on verse 1. It's interesting that he doesn't begin chapter 2 with a command. He doesn't come right out and say, be united, be one, be unified. Instead, he starts with these conditional clauses, right? He says, therefore, if there is any, if there's this, if there's this, if there's this. 
Now, those are what are called first-class conditions, which means they're assumed to be true. Paul's not saying, you know, if there's any comfort of love, there might be, there might not, I don't know. What he's saying is, if there's any encouragement in Christ, and I assume that there is, there is if you are in him. So this isn't Paul questioning the Philippians' salvation, you know, maybe they're in Christ, maybe they're not. He's assuming they are. And he's seen the evidence of their salvation already in their testimony. But there is a certain amount of conditionality here, if you will. In other words, for you to experience Philippians 2.1, you must be in Christ. And so it's an important question we have to deal with. Are you a believer, a follower of Jesus? Have you ever come to that point where you've recognized your own sinfulness and said, I am lost apart from Christ. There's nothing good that dwells in me. If I'm, to, if I'm to be saved, it is only through the grace and the mercy of the Lord. Because when you reach that point, that's when you experience the encouragement of Christ, the comfort of love, the fellowship of the Spirit. Not before. So if, if this is going to be true of you, you must have come to that point of receiving Christ as your Savior. If you've never done that, today would be a great day. Talk with me, talk with somebody here at our church, one of our our steering committee meeting members, and we'd love to share with you that way of salvation. Nevertheless, he assumes for the Philippians this is true, that they have made that decision, that they have come to the point of receiving Christ as Savior. These condition clauses, though, give us a picture of what salvation looks like. It gives us a picture of the common ground that the Philippians shared together. He lists, first of all, encouragement in Christ. Do you see that in verse 1? Therefore, if there's any consolation or encouragement in Christ. Now, this is not really the encouragement that we receive from Christ necessarily. But rather the encouragement we receive from being in Christ. So as believers, we share Christ in common. And we are comforted and consoled in that. Now, that's not to say that Christ does not comfort those who are his. But it's this idea of being in Christ. That's a favorite expression of the Apostle Paul. He loves to say that for those who will believe, they are in Christ. All over. In fact, uh, look at Philippians, uh, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 1 has in Christ all over the place. For believers, to be in Christ is to be a believer. It's to be Redeemed. But followers of Jesus should support one another and encourage one another in all circumstances of life. And that's the consolation that comes from being in Christ. It comes from Jesus, but also from fellow believers. They have that common ground. They're all together in Christ. He also mentions, though, the comfort of love. Comfort of love. Now, you'll notice that's kind of open-ended. Well, what love? I think it's probably talking about God's love here. And you might say, well, God's not specifically named, but I think it's implied. If there's any comfort of love, primarily God's love for us. And I'll point out why in just a few minutes. First of all, the word comfort here is the idea of of solace or consolation. It's, It's like someone who speaks words of comfort to you in a difficult time. You ever had that happen? going through something difficult, or maybe it was even uh, a time of pain, and somebody came along and spoke words that just calmed you. 
Or maybe it was a time when you were angry about something and somebody came along and just sort of with a soothing, sort of calm voice just talked with you and immediately you felt yourself kind of simmering back down. That's, that's this word here, the comfort of God's love. It's almost as if God's love is being reminded to us that we're, the, the whisper of God's love, as some people have referred to it. Well, what is the love of God? Well, first of all, God himself is love. It's the expression of himself to us. He loved us while we were still sinners, it says in Romans. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That thought ever bring you any comfort, any consolation? To know that you've been loved by the eternal God. It's the comfort of God's love, I think, primarily. It's also the basis for their unity. They share this love in common. The Philippians have all been loved by their great God. Finally, he mentions fellowship of the Spirit, third. Fellowship of the Spirit. And we've mentioned this word before, koinonia. It means fellowship, partnership. Now, Usually when we use the term fellowship, we're talking about eating something. Like we all get together and we're going to share a meal. Or maybe we're just going to sort of socialize. The point is, fellowship, koinonia, means a lot more than that. It means joining together, being knit together, partners. Paul has been talking about the Philippian church as in koinonia with him. Partnership for the gospel. That's more than just, hey, we shared a meal together one time. But rather, a close, common goal. Well, here he says it's the fellowship of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit here. That believers have this in common. They share the Spirit. One Spirit lives in me. And it's the same Spirit that lives in you if you're a follower of Jesus. And there's nothing that creates a closer unity between believers than that. That we share God's Spirit. He also mentions, though, fourth, affection and mercy. And some versions might even say, give a literal translation, bowels of mercy. That was the expression that the Greeks used for the seat of emotion. We talk about the seat of emotion as being the heart. But for them, it was the bowels. It kind of comes off sounding a little strange in our language. Nevertheless, it's talking about a deep-seated emotional connection. This is the same word, by the way, that Paul used back in chapter 1, verse 8, when he said, God is my witness how, how greatly I long for you with the affection of Christ. This is, this is not just sort of a uh, kind of a distant connection that, oh yeah, Paul, Paul cares about the Philippians. No, he deeply cares for them. And that ought to be the experience of believers one to another. Affection and mercy. Mercy talks about the idea of sympathy. Feeling someone else's pain. Being able to sympathize with them. Being able to, to walk with them. Through difficulty. In other words, you Philippians are, should be united, not just in a, in a superficial way, like, oh, we all go to the same church, but in a deeply emotional, personal way. You see, a church ought to care for one another. I know sometimes we'll, we'll remind each other that love is a verb, you know, love isn't necessarily a feeling, and that's true. But if there's no feelings of love in your church, then I'm afraid something may have gone off the rail at some point. 
Because that's the expectation is that, yes, love is a choice that we make, but it should develop with it feelings of affection and mercy that Paul describes here. Here's the point with verse 1, though, the observations I want to make. First, do you notice how Trinitarian verse 1 is? You have the encouragement of Christ, the love, I think, of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit. The same, the same uh, triad is found in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, that famous benediction. And he uses it here. In other words, what he's saying to the Philippians is what you have in common is the, the unity of God. If you've been saved, you have a part in this, in a sense. Just like Jesus said in that high priestly prayer in John 17, he says that the praise that the believers would be one as you, Father, are in me, I in you, that they may also be in us. See, the Trinity provides the best picture of what unity looks like. The God the Son is never in disunity with God the Father. God the Spirit is never in disunity with God the Son. So not only is it a picture of that, it's also what gives us that. So in other words, Paul is saying to the Philippians, if you're a believer, there's no reason why you can't have unity. You have in common the most important thing of all. You have this common ground in Christ. Not only that, if you're in Christ... The transforming work of God has taken place. You see, try and be humble all you want. You will never achieve it unless the Lord is at work in your heart. I think that's what Ben Franklin was crashing up against in his life. Trying to be humble in his own strength. Trying to sort of work out his virtues himself. That will never work. Always pride will be there, tainting everything you do. It is only when you come to know Christ that he begins to work in your heart to change you to be a humble servant like he is. You will ever hope to achieve true humility and therefore true unity. See, proud people cannot be humble except by the grace of God. And that's what he's pointing out in verse 1. You've experienced the grace of God. If you're in Christ, if you have all these things, then you can be and should be unified in him. He's basically saying, if you guys are in Christ, you have experienced the love of God, the fellowship of the Spirit, the encouragement of Christ, and there's no reason why you cannot be united in unity and humility. That's the first key. Recognize that common ground we have with one another. Two, this is the second key. Be single-minded, he says. Be single-minded. Look now at verse 2. Paul says, fulfill my joy. By the way, there's that word again. All throughout Philippians, joy keeps coming up, doesn't it? May not be the central theme, but it's certainly a strong theme in Philippians. Joy, Paul's joy. He says, make my joy complete, fulfill it. It's almost like he's saying, I, I've got joy, I'm, I'm living in joy. But you know what would bring me even more joy? is if I hear that you are living as one, united, unified. He says, make my joy complete by being like-minded. Single-mindedness here is not just thinking the same thing. I mean, no two people think exactly the same, despite how similar we might sometimes think. It, does, and it doesn't even mean that we share the same opinion on everything. Again, if we, if we got right down to it, I imagine we'd have some very different opinions about some things even in this room. So it's not that. 
No, single-mindedness refers to the purpose that knits people together. And that's what made Paul's joy complete, is to hear that they were united in one purpose. Just like a parent is joyful, happy when they hear that their children are unified, right? I mean, as a parent, it makes you happy when your kids get along. It doesn't make you too happy to know that they're not speaking to one another or they're fighting with one another. That's how Paul feels. He says, make my joy complete by being unified. This oneness, this unity, which he talks about here, is only achieved by the single-mindedness. Now, in the verse, he catalogs four spheres in which the believer is to be one. First, he says, one in worldview. Look at this in verse 2. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded. That phrase right there, like-minded, is interesting. It, It talks about an outlook of life. It's talking about a shared mindset. Now, here's the question, though. If we're to be like-minded, whose mind are we to be like? Generally, what we think is, well, everybody should think like me, and then we wouldn't have any problems, right? I mean, if everybody just agreed with everything I said, did everything I said, then we would be unified, and we wouldn't, it'd be total peace. But that's not what Paul has in mind. Because all that would do is cause more strife, right? If if everybody tried to impose their view as the view, you know, everybody should have my mind. Instead, he tells us, verse 5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, you need the mind of Christ. And the more our minds are like Jesus, the more we'll see things together. To be like-minded is to be Christ-minded. And the more each of us shares that outlook, the more we're going to be drawn together. Again, this term here, like-minded, is talking about a whole outlook of life. A worldview. That we're able to see things from the same perspective. Again, not all of us have every opinion the same. But I would dare say that most of us in this room share the same general perspective of life. Yeah, we're... we're Amazed by God's grace. We're looking forward to his coming again. Those are things that we share. Because we have a common worldview that we're looking out. And the more we're drawn together, the more we're like Christ, the more we will be unified. Again, it doesn't mean we're going to have the same view on everything. I imagine that there's some activities that I enjoy that you probably wouldn't. And vice versa. Some of you in this room like cats. Uh, some of you in this room like fruitcake. And so we're not going to agree on those things. But we have the same worldview. To see as Christ sees. And that should be what we're striving towards. One in worldview, but also one in love. He talks about this in the verse. Having the same love for one another. Now you already talked about affection and mercy. But to be united in one love. That's what really characterizes believers, isn't it? If we're not one in love, then we're not united, are we? The object of love here is not specified, so he says we should be one in love. Our love for Jesus, yes, but also our love for one another. In other words, being single-minded is not just intellectual. It's also deeply felt. Everything that goes along with the word agape fits here. Because he says, let you be, be one in love, sharing the same love. 
One in worldview, one in love, one in attitude, he says. Verse 2, being of one accord. Of one accord. And your version might read slightly differently, but the original is actually interesting. The word actually means sold together. As in S-O-U-L-E-D. Not sold together as in purchased, but we are knit together in sold. That's the idea. Sold together. One in attitude. Harmonious unity is what's referred to here. Paul in, in Colossians 2 verse 2 says, desired the Colossian church to be encouraged, knit together in love. That's what he wants here as well. Knit together in love. Finally, they will also be one in focus. The very end of the verse it says, of one mind. So being like-minded of one mind. Aren't those saying the same thing? Is he just repeating himself here? Again, it's not just one one way of thinking. But it has to do with purpose or focus. Do we have the same purpose? Are we united in our focus? Uh, We had a leadership meeting yesterday. And we were all reminded in that meeting that as a church plant... This is not a luxury cruise. This is a battleship in a way. That every person has their part to play. Every, everybody is hands on deck. And then when you have that mentality, it's a little different than the cruise liner, right? Where everybody is there to be served, right? Sit by the pool, have, have somebody bring you your drinks. Whereas if you have the mentality of the focus is we're here to do a mission. It's a totally different attitude. Totally different focus. That's what he's talking about here. United in a purpose. To make Jesus known. To share the gospel. It's interesting how that focus, that purpose, brings people together. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was an interesting man. He was actually a medical doctor in England. But eventually became one of the most prolific expositors of scripture in the 20th century in England. He lived through the Second World War, and, and he records his, the events of that war. As you know, England was attacked by the Germans with bombing raids often, especially during the first half of the war. And here's what he wrote about what effect that had on the British population. He writes, How often during the last war were we told of the extraordinary scenes in air raid shelters? How different people belonging to different classes there in common need of shelter from the bombs and death, forgot all their differences between them and became one. It was because in the common interest they forgot divisions and distinctions. That's why you always tend to have a coalition government during a war. In periods of crisis and common need, all distinctions are forgotten and we suddenly become united. As the church embraces their mission to make Christ known, suddenly those other petty differences are much less important. We get focused on what really matters. Let me give you a third key to Christ-like, humble unity. It's this. Learn self-forgetfulness. Learn self-forgetfulness. If we ever hope to achieve unity, it will be through humility. And we can never be one as Christ prayed that we would. Unless we learn to put ourselves second. Learn self-forgetfulness. This is humility. Humility. 
Now the whole idea of humility was scorned by the culture in Paul's day. The, the Roman culture had no time for humility. The only people who needed to be humble were slaves and anybody's not strong enough to speak up for themselves. If you were a Roman, nobody made you a servant. So humility was looked down upon. However, Jesus taught the way of humility. He taught his disciples to lower themselves and make themselves servants. Only those who put themselves last would be first. Look at verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. So the contrast here is between the wrong attitude of selfishness and uh, vainglory and that of proper humility. According to Paul, nothing should be done out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Let's take a moment with both of those terms. Selfish ambition. That was the attitude, by the way, of Paul's opponents in Philippi. If you go back to chapter 1, verse uh, 16 and 17, it says there, the former preached Christ from selfish ambition. Interesting. Selfish ambition. It's, it's the pursuit of self at the expense of others. It's trying to achieve the highest or best place in order to boast of yourself. It's the person who's willing to step on other people to move up the ladder. Selfish ambition is an ugly, ugly thing. New Testament commentator Gordon Fee writes, Selfish ambition stands at the heart of human fallenness, where self-interest and self-aggrandizement are at the expense of others. Those with selfish ambition are cruel people. Because all they see is themselves and their advancement. Everybody else is just a tool to get there. Then he talks about those who have vain conceit or vain glory. Really the term means empty glory. Uh, somebody who praises themselves, who loves to blow their own horn. This is the person who loves to hear themselves talk. And, and their ears are attuned to their own praises. And if nobody else is singing their own praises, they're happy to take up the tune themselves. They always like to appear bigger than they are. They like to be impressive and try and impress people. But it's all empty. They talk a big game. They, they want you to think they're big stuff. This is like the young lawyer I read about who started a new practice in a small town. And he wanted everybody in the town to know that he was a big shot lawyer, that he was, he was the real deal. So he sets up his law offices and waits. The first day passes. The second day comes. And he's in his office and in walks a client. He doesn't want to appear like a small town lawyer. So as the client begins to come through the door, he picks up his phone and fakes a conversation. And he starts saying, no, absolutely not. You tell those clowns in New York City that I, I won't settle the case for less than a million dollars. The Court of Appeals has agreed to hear the case next week. You tell the DA that I'll, I'll meet with him next week to discuss the details with my team. Then he hangs up the phone and says, I'm sorry, sir, you know, uh, what can I help you with? And the man says, I'm here to set up your phone. <laughs> you see, a lot of people like to talk a big game and try and make themselves look impressive. Paul calls it vainglory. Instead, he says, here's the attitude of the believer. 
is to act in all lowliness of mind and esteem others as better than himself. Lowliness of mind, that's the term he uses. It's an interesting expression. To, to lower oneself to the lowest possible rung on the ladder. Now, now this isn't somebody who's just down on themselves. It's not somebody who just is woe is me, you know, kind of walks around with this Eeyore type expression. No, it's humility he's talking about. Lowering of oneself. Really, humility is to have a proper view of yourself in the light of God. It's to see yourself as you really are. Lowering yourself, dethroning yourself from the place of glory in your life. I think we all need a little humility, don't we? We all need to be lowered a notch. Martin Luther records an interesting event from nature. He tells of seeing two billy goats on the side of a cliff. And they're walking along this precarious little ledge. And two goats meet each other face to face upon that ledge. There was no going around, of course. And so he watched to see what would happen. Presumably, the billy goats would do as they often do, butt heads. If that happened, one or perhaps both of them would fall from the ledge and die. So they stood there at an impasse. Luther watched on. And he says he saw something incredible. The first goat lowered itself on its front paws or on its front hooves, went down and basically flattened himself against the ledge, and the other goat walked across the back of the first. So rather than butting heads and killing each other, one chose to lower himself. You see, we don't want to be the goat, do we? No, a lot of times what happens is two people end up banging their heads against each other because I'm not going to lower myself. I'm too good for that. And what's the result? One or both fall off the cliff. Sometimes we have this idea, and we may even say it to each other, well, don't let that person walk all over you. I get it. Nobody likes to be taken advantage of. But to take on this lowliness of mind means to be the servant. It means to lower yourself. It means to esteem others as better than yourself. That's what he says here. We've heard a lot about self-esteem, but Paul talks about others' esteem. Again, this is such a difficult lesson to learn, self-forgetfulness. Because that's a good term for it. Humility is not just thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Forgetting yourself. And whenever you esteem others as better than yourself, you're basically saying, I'm interested in their needs. Not taking into account, not thinking of yourself, but honestly, putting someone else first. Again, this is so difficult to do. Just as Ben Franklin pointed out, it's not easy. John Calvin once wrote about humility and said, If anything in our whole life is difficult, this above everything else is so. But it's something we must learn. Learn self-forgetfulness. Finally, the fourth key. Look to the needs of others. Go to verse 4. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So esteeming others is better than yourself is looking out for their interest. It's interesting. He says, let, you, let each of you look out for others. That idea of look has the idea of careful attention. Careful attention. It's the same kind of attention you pay to your own life. 
we often look out for our own interests, don't we? We're considering how this is going to affect us and, and what's the best possible outcome that will benefit me. He's saying, take that outlook and apply it to someone else. So instead of me saying, how's this best going to benefit me? You say, how can I make this best benefit someone else? Looking out for the needs of others. Actually, if you look at verse 4, my version says looking out for the interests of others. Really, the literal translation would be looking out for the things of someone else. So if we're going to look out for the things of something else, that's pretty broad, isn't it? It's not just, oh, I'll look out for, for this or that, but everything that pertains to their life. It's putting others first. And you'll also notice in verse 4, a lot of English translations put in the word only or merely. So in other words, let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. That word only is not actually in the text. He says, don't look out for your own interests, but look out for others. Now, I think we understand that Paul wasn't saying you should just forget your own interests, don't pay your bills, don't you know, take care of your family, don't do any of those things, only look out for others. But I think he leaves the word out to make a point, to make this hit harder. It's not, our natural bent is to look out for number one. He says, no, look out for the needs of others. When you do, you act in Christ-like humility, because that's what Jesus did. In the very next section in verses 5 through 8, Paul describes how Jesus looked out, not for his own interest, but he looked out for yours. And he came and made himself a servant and died on a cross, not because it was good for him, because it was good for you. We need to look out to the needs of others. And when we do, we hope to achieve unity through humility. As I said at the beginning, I don't have an answer for all the divisions that are in our country. But I do know that we will not live out the unity that God has meant for us as his church without Christ-like humility. Again, I ask, how do we be humble? Well, we take these keys from Philippians 2, we put them into practice. But let me give you a couple more suggestions as it relates to humility. Number one, keep your eyes on Christ. The one who humbled himself who is the model of what humility looks like. And the more we look at Christ, the more humbled we ought to be by it. How can anyone be prideful at the foot of the cross? How can anyone be prideful who walks closely with Christ, the one who was humble and lowly? So keep your eyes on Christ. The more we do, I think the better equipped we will be to learn humility. Number two, recognize your own sinfulness. We start thinking of ourselves as pretty good people. And we forget what sinners we are. In fact, even, even the thought of us thinking to ourselves, hey, I'm a pretty good person, is sinful pride rising up within us, isn't it? The more we realize I'm a sinner, I deserve nothing, I'm a debtor to grace and grace alone, the more humble it will make us. I'm not better than anyone else in this room. Not by a long shot. It's only the grace of God by which I stand before you. Recognize your own sinfulness. John Owen, the Puritan preacher, said this. There are two things that are suited to humble the souls of men. 
A due consideration of God and then of ourselves. Of God in his greatness, glory, holiness, power, and majesty. Of ourselves in our mean, abject, and sinful state. In other words, John Owen is saying, keep your eyes on Christ and remember how sinful you are. And it will keep you humble. Number three, be reminded of your creaturely dependence. Be reminded of your creaturely dependence. Do you notice this? We couldn't live one day unless God sustained us. Paul says in in 1 Corinthians, who of you is boasting? What do you have that you were not given? It's a good question. We kind of act like I'm a self-made person. This is all my stuff that I provided for myself. And really, we're just creatures. Think about this. When you lay down to go to sleep tonight, you need to sleep. You're not God. You can't just go on forever with unlimited energy. You've got to sleep every night just to, just to even function. We're creatures. We're not almighty. By that token, we ought to be humbled by that. Humbled in the presence of our God. And finally, serve others. There's no better way to learn humility than by just practically serving others. And the more you serve others and, and just, just do it. Instead of saying, you know, well, I, I, need, I know I need to put the needs of others first. Well, put their needs first. Go serve them with no thought of how it might benefit you. And notice how your mindset may change. Now, I know we can serve others with a prideful mind. We can serve others with the wrong motives. But serving others is part of that puzzle of learning humility. You learn by doing. So we study the life of Christ and his example in the following verses. We're going to learn what humility really looks like. There's no unity without it. All of us need a healthy dose of humility. If we're going to be what Christ wants us to be. And be unified.